Greetings, you've landed at the VUC, IP Communications and VoIP Community. We would like to thank Simwood.com for their support. Simwood can turn you as a developer into a telco. Our hosted PBX is from OnSIP.com, and you can go to GetOnSIP.com for a URL people can click to call you. We've been privileged over the last five years to be using the best conference bridge on the planet. Yes, I'm talking about ZipDX.com, full-color, full-featured, full-HD conference bridge. Our website, VUC.me on the web, is hosted by Bluehost.com. And our worldwide local rate dial-ins are from Voxbone.com. And our guest is from Truephone.com. But before we get to that, a couple of announcements. First of all, uh, yeah, be good to start on camera. First of all, last but first but not least, we're going to. There we go. I got it. The shirt and the URL to get one if you want one. These are nice, right? I'll stand up. I could have a round of applause when I stand up. What's wrong way? I love this shirt. And uh, Sandro told me he doesn't make a dime on this stuff, and we certainly don't. But um, it's a good way to support him. Of course, you're supporting him virtually and spiritually, because there's no money to be made. Anyway, enough of that. We can uh, turn that part off. And the solid color that was behind it. So, there we go. Thank you so much. Uh, I would also like to shout out to Michael Graves, whose presence is sorely missed, because uh, I am all alone at the controls, doing everything, so if things screw up horribly, blame it on me. Okay? We've got the regulars with us, and um, I guess we should start by just throwing it right over to Mr. JT, James Tagg. Always a welcome guest. This is his only his second appearance. But James, why don't you take it away and tell us all about it? Hi, yeah. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about uh, what we see happening in the IoT and machine-to-machine market and what uh, we're doing. And then we'll show you one of our really kind of cool customers and some of their... Uh, case study material, which uh, gives you an idea of, of why machine-to-machine -machine and uh, particularly automotive type applications are really going to do something uh, to the way we drive cars and trucks and so on. So let me just go to screen share here, the exciting uh, moment. This has uh, been, oh, and a perfect entry into screen share there. Right, so I'm going to do a quick discussion about Truphone, then talk a little bit about the IoT market. Uh, then talk a little bit about the way our network works, and we'll sort of go through and talk about some case studies. So you know Truphone's background. So I lived and worked in America, and I was traveling back and forth between the UK and America, and I ended up carrying two mobile phones, and each of them was six pounds a minute to roam, and I thought this is ridiculous. And so we started Truphone that gives you one SIM to rule them all, one SIM, uh, one platform, uh, one contract, but you're in multiple countries. So you get a local experience all the way around the world, and it's super reliable and low cost and has absolutely fantastic customer service. I think last time we looked, our net promoter score was like 50. So our customers love us. Um, so let's talk a little about the, the IoT market. So um, IoT market and so on it keeps changing its name. Um, it used to sort of be machine to machine, and then it became the Internet of Things, and so on. Uh, and I don't see a, a, a very precise definition of them. Of them, I think the real thing to think about is the fact that today the vast majority of human beings on planet Earth now have a mobile phone, 
made well that's probably half of us there's still people who are poor enough they don't have one but um, mo most people have a mobile phone and in 10 maybe 20 years I mean the in lots of different votes I think that each of us will carry 10 mobile devices we'll have 10 sims on us or whatever and so you know we'll all have a pacemaker well maybe not pacemaker but we'll all have some sort of medical device that kind of keeps us fit and encourages us we'll have a wristwatch maybe those will be two things we'll have something in our bag so our computers don't get stolen and we can't don't lose them have something in our wallet so we don't lose our wallet or something to stop us losing our keys and forgetting our keys we'll have tagged all our children so that they can be found and kind of located and and, and uh, looked after we'll have been we'll have tagged our pets we'll have tagged i mean we'll just have tagged everything um and lots of things that are fixed will also get attached so uh, gas meters will be attached by mobile signals because it's easier than running wires. You look at uh, many countries in uh, Scandinavia and the majority of their internet comes by putting little kind of uh, mobile boxes on your table rather than, so it's the sort of wrong way around. We all th thought that we were going to get uh, fiber to the home and then that was going to broadcast Wi-Fi and in a lot of places in the world it goes the other way around. You get cellular to the home and that then broadcasts Wi-Fi. So there's a lot of variety. And so what we look at in the sort of Internet of Things, machine-to-machine machine world, is a real variety of different methods of com connecting. So the, I guess the, the, the main one is, is satellite, or the, the broadest one is satellite, because we have this problem that with cellular, you, know, you don't get it in the North Pole, and you don't get it in the South Pole, and you don't get it under up mountains, and you don't get it in High Wycombe. Right, so we have uh, a cellular network which um, serves maybe 20% of the planet and maybe 60, 70% of the population, but it still has enormous holes in terms of coverage um, when you actually look at its geographic kind of penetration. Uh, and <laughs> not true. Not true, hopefully. And then, of course, uh, so, so satellite still gives us this kind of wide area, but it's way too expensive and indeed... Cellular is way too expensive and way too power hungry to serve lots of the environment, uh, lots of the examples. So if I want to um, connect up all of the sort of bits and pieces in my home or the bits and pieces in my office, or I want to measure the temperature in every single room and connect every light switch, I'm not going to do that with cellular. I'm going to do that with Bluetooth or Zigbee or one of the, the local area networks. Uh, the most interesting one I saw when I was in America is that there's a new um, sort of pseudo Wi-Fi standard for cars so that cars can talk to each other. So rather than going round trip via cellular or round trip via satellite, there's actually a standard by which my car can talk to your car and your car can talk to the next car. So this is very interesting. So for example, I might be coming up to a junction, you're ahead of me. There is in fact uh, traffic about to cross that junction, right? I can see your camera. So I can see ahead of myself by seeing your camera. I can know whether you're about to break because I know that your foot is hovering over the brake. So there's this lot of, of very sophisticated communication on both a local and a general way. But of course, the nice thing about cellular is it sits in this kind of middle band where it's in most places you want it. It's high speed and it does allow you to get back to the internet, whereas you know, Bluetooth and Zigbee and all these things, they're a second hop technology. They, they need something to be their backhaul, whether that's a piece of fiber or a piece of cellular. 
Why are people doing it? Well, this is just a list of all of the kind of standard business reasons. But um, what we, uh, what I'll show you in a moment is that with a case study really kind of brings us home as to what really goes on with a, a, an Internet of Things uh, launch. But what we see is uh, new products. So everyone's starting to carry little kind of devices in their bags to stop theft. Um, new ways of kind of distributing things. Uh, new new business model. So one of our customers, which I'll show you in a moment, uh, now puts our SIM in vehicles with cameras, and those cameras uh, watch to see if there's an accident in in uh, um, the vehicle. So as soon as a g-force of the vehicle goes above three or four, it reckons that's a potential accident, and it starts feeding back camera information to the central. Um, uh, center. Now, the interesting thing, of course, is that what they actually can make money out of is driver ed. So you now know which drivers are better and worse, which drivers have more and less accidents because which drivers are involved in G-Force incidents more often. So you can actually charge to train drivers because you now know which drivers are going to be good and which drivers are going to be bad. You can correlate their G-Forces with uh, um, with, with accident rates. So that's a completely new business model. And you can also obviously feed that to the insurance company. So insurance company can give you 10% off your car insurance if you've got one of these cameras in the cab. But that's a kind of boring thing. The interesting thing is the way that it changes people's behavior. And then it actually allows you to change their behavior in advance. So not only can you change their behavior because they know they're being watched, but actually, rather than watching them and being a bit of a sort of a punishment type thing, you can actually show them which sorts of driving things they do cause problems and therefore make them better drivers. So we can all be better people, improve the human race. So when we look into uh, IoT machine to machine, we really see that um, it's sort of dominated by three sectors. So the first thing is automotive. Automotive, they reckon, is going to be around 65% of the revenue in machine-to-machine. Uh, -machine. The next segment that is really coming up quite interestingly is the watch segment. There are an awful lot of connected devices. Let's uh, ask a pop quiz question. Um, how many, yeah, how many watches, I don't know how you do a pop quiz on this thing, but how many watches do you think were sold in 2014? So some sort of wearable, connected, wristbandy, smartish device. Approximately how many do you think? A In million? the low, low millions. Yeah. Yeah, low millions. Okay, about 250 million devices. Well, that's low millions. <laughs> <laughs> so, so low millions, not, not quite a billion, um, I less than 500 million. But, I mean, I was staggered by that. I thought it would be, uh, you know, 4 million, 8 million devices. So there are just a ton of devices that people wear on their wrists that are actually quite smart, all these polar watches and running watches and all that sort of stuff. So the watch segment is remarkably large, and we're seeing a lot of watch projects at the moment uh, where uh, we'll see them in CES maybe in January next year. Some of them will fail, and they'll move them to the following year, but a lot of, a lot of stuff. And we saw the first... Um, kind of fully connected watch launch at Mobile World Congress. So that was the Samsung G2 cellular. And that allows you to, you know, it has a cellular um, SIM, an eSIM in the watch. And in that instance, they've got around all of the KYC and how do you get it to boot up by, they pair it with your, your mobile phone. 
So you get one of these Samsung watches, which is quite cool. And someone in the conference can find a picture and drop it in, into uh, the conference in a moment. But you, you get quite a cool watch. Um, and then you pair it up with your mobile phone. And because your mobile phone has the right know your customer in each of the countries where you live, it assumes, therefore, that the, if the watch is a pair of that phone, then it's a legitimate to give you a SIM. So that means you can launch SIMs and watches in 90-odd countries, and Samsung announced and, and showed that product at Mobile World Congress. And then the final segment, of course, is amazing fragmentation. So we'll show in a moment this, this sort of driver-ed video product, but we see tons and tons of stuff. Uh, the biggest one, I guess, is metering. So uh, gas meters and uh, electricity meters in the home are often connected back to base by cellular because it's just too much of a trouble to try and draw cable through your house to get to your under the stairs in Britain or down in the cellar in, in America or out back in Japan. You know, it's all, it's all very different. So a lot of those are being done by cellular. I've, I've got a car charging point uh, for my PHEV vehicle, and that's got a, an O2 SIM in it to, to take it back to um, uh, base again because it's it, you know it would be uh, too expensive to build. And when you look at automotive, it's also quite a broad church. So automotive is quite fragmented as well. So you have uh, in the front of your car, if you've got a Tesla, you've got the map console and all that sort of information. So that's the maps and information. You have telematics, so people know what the engine is doing. Maybe they can tell you that you need a service. Maybe they can even listen to the rumbling of your uh, bearings and tell you that, that, that your car is, has, has a problem. Uh, someone was saying telematics is incredibly low data rate. Um, McLaren Formula One racing cars have telematics in them, and they have somewhere around half a gigabit of uh, bandwidth sending back all the stuff from the engine. So if you want to, you can make telematics extraordinarily high bandwidth. So it's not just a low bandwidth thing. Uh, in the back of the car, you have infotainment. So you can watch Netflix or whatever you want to do. Uh, I guess it's your kids that will be watching Netflix. I'm hoping that my kids shortly will learn to drive. And I can be in the back of the car watching Netflix while we're driving along. Um, and then obviously, you want a phone in your car. And at the moment, the default is that you pair your car, your phone up with Bluetooth, but actually you probably would like it properly built into the car so you don't have to go through that pairing. Uh, and then in America and Europe, we have two different sort of safety standards. So in Europe, it's now legislated that all cars built in 2017 onwards must have e-call. And the US kind of got going with this much earlier than Europe with the E911 service, but um, the E91 service is not quite as, as sort of expansive as the eCall standard. So the eCall standard is that every car must have a phone in it or a, a SIM in it. If you have an accident, which is measured by a G-force incident above a certain amount or turning upside down, I guess, um, it will call the emergency services and it will make an audio circuit between you and the emergency services. So the ambulance can say, well, we're on our way to you, sir. We know where you are. Just apply pressure to the wound and be with you uh, really quickly. So that's uh, the, the equal European service. Americans have had um, an obligation to be able to find you within 100 meters using your cell phone for some years now. So um, whether we see a mandatory building of that in, into cars, 
with uh, in America, I don't know. But I think it's very unlikely that um, if you have all of these goodies in your car um, and cars are sold worldwide, that you won't effectively get equal in America as well, just because why wouldn't you? So that's sort of all the things that are happening. So Trufen, uh, oh, and then, then there's the projections of uh, um, connected vehicles. And so uh, we see um, what's that's about uh, 400, ooh, that's a wrong scale. Anyway, um, a, a, an enormous amount. I mean, basically every person on the planet getting 10 SIMs rather than one SIM is approximately the projection. So let me just talk a little bit about the Trufen network. Obviously, um, uh, I want to sell you on it. So um, the Trufen network is kind of, kind of cool because what we do is we're local everywhere. And the local, being local everywhere is quite nice if you're a human being because it means that you get uh, high data rates because we don't take your data all the way back to our home network like a conventional network. Uh, we drop it locally. Um, and so in a, uh, a conventional network or in a, a Trufen network, we're actually giving you a sort of a local pop in the U USA and a local pop in the UK and all those sorts of things, which is quite kind of kind of useful. And the re main reason it's useful is that, that roaming would break edge caching. So if you're watching Netflix on a mobile and you don't drop the data locally, then all your data has got to go across the Atlantic to the Netflix servers and back. Or in fact, it's not going to go. It's got to go to your home network. So if you're an English sim roaming in America, all the data would go back to England and it would drop out to Netflix. Um, so all of the work that Netflix have done to locally cache all of the movies near where they need to be delivered is ruined by the fact that you then go, you have to go across the Atlantic back to your home network or even all the way from Australia back to the UK. Um, and that, that breaks uh, the, the caching for both streaming things and also uh, page assembly. So if you, if you go to Amazon to buy something, you're actually going to 14 different domains and you get page assembly that you just don't notice in Chrome or Safari or whatever. Um, but you can only kick off three things at a time uh, in general on the internet. And so what happens if you're trying to, to put 14 domains together, you need to kick off three things, wait, kick off three things, wait, kick in, and, and you build your page. And in the mobile, if that's all going over you know, 200 milliseconds of delay, then again, you, you, you fail to build pages. And that's why um, you get this sort of uh, difference between 3G and 4G performance uh, in markets. So for example, people will do banking on 4G, but not on 3G. And that's because the, you can rely on pages uh, being assembled correctly because there's not the, the delays that have happen on 3G. So again, if you want to, to do something um, on a worldwide basis, it's nice if you uh, preserve edge caching by being local. And so that's really what, what we did. And this is just a slide showing you know, the problem is that actually it's a multi-stack problem at the moment. If you're a car manufacturer, you're looking out at 860 completely different stacks, all of which uh, home route their their um, their traffic, and that means you've got to integrate to 850 uh, operators potentially to get all of your uh, your work done. So this is the Trufen architecture. So we have two data centers, one in Amsterdam and one in London, and then we have these local breakouts for voice and data. And so you get a single logical ca uh, stack um, for. Uh, to interact with. So if you use one of our APIs, you would just, it's one API for the whole world, uh, but you're local. Now we did this because bankers want this or 
businessmen want it because it's quite nice uh, because your, all your pages work really well. You can have one service from Truthone and you can have a company with offices in America and offices in Australia and so on. And uh, you, all of you get a local service quality, but it all comes through one counter to work out how much money you've spent. So they, they quite liked it. But um, where it really, really becomes useful is in machine to machine. Because this is exactly what you want in machine to machine. You want one single interface for billing and, and uh, um, management, but you want all of the uh, data to stay local. So if you ship a car from uh, Japan to America and it lands in America, um, you know how to talk to it because it's going to be the same, but it's local. So it's the same as if it has the same performance as if you'd gone down to a Verizon shop and grabbed a Verizon SIM and plugged it in. Now, obviously, you don't want to go down to the Verizon shop and plug it in with a car because um, that's a pretty difficult thing to grovel around in the engine bay trying to work out where a SIM went. And also, SIMs are going away for cars because uh, a, a car is a pretty aggressive environment and you don't generally want something that is sort of pushed into a slot and, and achieves its connection to the rest of the car with gold connectors, connectors under pressure. You know, that, that's going to go wrong over time. Um, so what we see today is the modules that are shipped for cars generally have one eSIM and then one physical SIM slot because we don't yet, yet have a universal eSIM. But I think what's going to happen is we're going to go down to one SIM. And here's just a sort of progression of, of the SIMs. So once upon a time, SIMs were credit card sized. And of course, every credit card that we now carry that's chip and pin is one of those original cellular. And uh, I don't know whether anyone ever had a phone that actually took a full credit card format size. James Bodie is saying yes. <laughs> uh, I do did. remember an orange one. Even when I saw it, it was laughable. And then really all that happened uh, for... 10, 15 years was scissor engineering. Um, people basically cut the edges off SIMs. And in fact, you, you can get, if you get the right scissors, take uh, any of these full-size SIMs and cut them down and put it into any phone on the planet. Although the nano SIM is actually very slightly thinner than the other formats, as well as uh, smaller, um, you know, cut more aggressively. <coughs> and so on, on some phones, you can't, uh, you, you can't get... You can't scissor a SIM down. But what we're now seeing is, is proper innovation in SIMs, and really we see a few things. So uh, embedded SIMs are flip chip bonded. So you basically take that chip, and now you get it in a, a different die format. You turn it upside down. You put it onto some solder on the board. You heat the thing up in, a, in an oven, and it reflows. And now your SIM is permanently bonded to the uh, to the car and you can't kind of shake it loose. It's just a SIM, but you can't shake it loose. And because you can't shake it loose, it needs some over-the-air update uh, methodology. James, uh, can I, may I ask a question? Yes. So we, you uh, mentioned the problem of vibration and hostile environment yes. in an auto. And if, uh, frankly, my Huawei <laughs> MiFi isn't that hostile, but it also has problems, well-known yes. problems all over the world yeah. with inter, you know, SIM and contacts. So these are contacts. It's always going to be a problem. It's like motors and moving parts. My question is, um, in, but we also want a SIM because you want to change phones and in possibly change cars. Now, if you're renting a car, for example, what's going to happen? Uh, can you speak a little to that scenario? You, you may be changing a vehicle and you want your data. How is that? Right now, how are we looking at that uh, scenario? 
well, I mean, the car rental would be really, really hard, I have to say. But uh, um, because well, not, you if, be... not if you were plugging in a SIM, but since we've eliminated... No, that... well, we're going, to, we're going to eliminate SIMs and uh, in due course. And um, so it's a sort of the SIM is dead long, long with the SIM. So we're not going to lose an authentication unit. And indeed, I, I don't think we're going to lose a hardware authentication unit. How about authentication through via your phone? Some kind of wireless. Well, I'm, I yes. the, after so all, ex- you you bond uh, you bond you your uh, phone. You get into the rental car. You're peering with the unit for audio. So maybe there's a way to do that. Well, yes, that's exactly what the G2 watch does. So if you imagine that your car could be uh, configured in the same as the Samsung watch, you get into the car with your mobile phone. You tell the rental car that you are you know, Randy. Um, and uh, it says, okay, good. I know, I have KYC for you. I know who you are. I am going to now transfer your identity into this car until such time as I notice that you leave the car or whatever and actually kind of move the authentication uh, across. And now the car is authenticated to you and can share your data, which means the dashboard can, can fully come up and show your maps, your Google maps, your... Um, Netflix account in the back seat. I mean, it fully, lo- you know, fully localizes to you, and there's absolutely no reason why you can't use that. You, know, you, you can't do that, and I think that that's where we're going. Mm-hmm. The question: There have been a lot of questions about soft SIM, i.e., whether we need something that's a real SIM. And of course, when you go to watches, you have the problem and wearables. You just don't have space for a SIM. So some people kind of cut the corners off embedded SIMs and made really, really, really tiny chip SIMs. But uh, a lot of people are talking about going to soft SIM. So the worry about soft SIM is hacking. And so I, I, I maybe I shouldn't say this publicly when it's being recorded, but anyway, I, I'm, not, I'm not super worried about someone hacking my phone or hacking my bank account because I can handle those issues through contract or through some form of insurance, Right. So if someone hacks my credit card, um, then my bank will generally repudiate the charges and deal with it and so on. I am immensely worried about someone hacking my pacemaker or my car or my aeroplane or my insulin dispensing device. So what we see now is a a bunch of people starting to put hardware protection on die. So Mm -hmm. SIM on on die. So Samsung Knox has a hardware protection device on the die of the main processor, which main, means that you, you can't root that. That's not running Linux. That's running something kind of simpler and, and, and less prone to, to attack. And it then checks the Linux kernel and makes sure it hasn't been compromised. Now, at the moment, if it's been compromised, it shuts it down. Um, but it's on a mobile phone. Now, obviously, clearly, you don't want it to shut it down because that would be an obvious attack, which is compromise the Linux kernel. It will shut down and your airplane will fall out of the sky. So people are getting into really sophisticated systems where you have to have a safe image and then you upload a new image. And if the safe image is detected to have been rooted, you go back to uh, the safe image and so on. So you're always in a safe position. So there's a lot of work going on in, in that sort of uh, area. And whether the thing that the thing is an, a real SIM, um, recognizable as a SIM built using the same sort of code, or whether it's a Knox chip, I think ARM have, have, have announced some sort of uh, hardware protection unit that you can put onto your uh, microprocessor die. I, I think that's the way we'll we'll go.
we'll end up with something sim-like or a sim on every on every microprocessor. And there'll be a move, IoT. And there'll be a movie next year reboot at five thousand feet or something. Um, yes, yes, <laughs> <laughs> indeed. Well, uh, we have we've had a few of those, right? Haven't we? Quick. Uh, well, the entertainment center certainly has done it many yeah. times. A uh, quick question on just to put things in relative. Uh, Apple, what was an iPad came out with? It, it was seamless. If you don't know this, uh, Tim Penn is here, and he may. Um, what was that about? So, what what kind of sim is that? That's not a sim. It's a it's an no, electronic it, sim. Well, the, the Apple sim is a sim. It's a physical. Oh, uh, it's a it's just not removable. Physical. No, no, it's removable as well. You, you, you know, you get a SIM in your iPad when you first buy it. You can pull it out and okay. put um, a Malawi Telecom SIM in it, or you can go to the Apple Store and say, "Please squirt with me the Malawi Telecom's image, so that I can buy a data service for ten pounds a month and light up my iPhone." So you basically got the choice of leaving an eSIM in the slot or pulling it out and putting in. A regular SIM and keeping your eSIM in the drawer for kind of future use. Okay, I misunderstood apparently, but but the eSIM that you're talking about, it's not just a SIM card; it's some kind of an imprintable SIM, then, right? Yeah. So all eSIMs have to be over the air updatable, otherwise okay. you've you bonded something in. Um, so, but of course, you can make an eSIM as a pluggable a pluggable format unit, and you can just take your standard phone, pull out your SIM, put in an eSIM, and now as you travel the world, you can flip images. And if you think, that's exactly what TruePhone does. You pull out your, your uh, SIM, you put in a TruePhone SIM, and now when you move countries, it flips IMCs mm -hmm. uh, that you relocalize to the country. So uh, we were one of the first to, to put an eSIM-style technology out there. And, of course, the, the, as, as always happens with these things, People then uh, develop standards. You get interest rate bodies come together. Um, uh, you, you standardize and you solve the problem, uh, hopefully in a, a positive compromise between all the different interested parties so you get something. So you know, we're, we're evolving towards um, you know, a, a sort of electronically pluggable protective SIM that can be deployed either as a pluggable SIM to legacy devices or bonded onto the board for future devices. Okay. But there's a lot of standardization work to go at the moment. And just a quick uh, uh, callback to something you said about power meters, and we're talking IoT. I took a quick look because we were notified that we are going to get a new power meter. We, we have a brand new one because ours went bad a few years ago. Uh, but there's a new one coming out, and it's an auto... Um, uh, I can't think of the word in English, but it's, it automatically sends the, mm -hmm. uh, cons yeah. the consumption, but it doesn't have a SIM. It does it over the power line. I just looked at that just now to see. We don't have it yet, but yeah. apparently it works over the power line. And I was thinking, boy, that does seem to be a little inefficient that every power meter everywhere had a SIM in it. That sounds like not the uh, ideal solution to me. Endearingly, there's a, a thing in the UK um, where there was supposed to be a rollout of those uh, power meters for everybody. And, over um, SIM or over power line? Um, I think it was over SIM, but it got um, it got blocked by GCHQ, who said that it was chronically insecure. And uh, okay. so it's it's currently on hold whilst they uh, fix the fact that they basically the whole network had one key. <laughs> um, it'll, it'll depend on how your power grid is, is wired up around the world, whether a power line modem will work well or not. 
So, I, it also, I guess it depends on where they want to put the device, the um, what we would call the frontal, ironically, in this country. Uh, the device that gets all the stuff together mm-hmm. uh, like a hub, kind of, and, and pulls all the information and then yes. does something with it that we don't know. Maybe that has a SIM in it. I don't know. <laughs> it's a, it's a, I mean, it's a good way of deploying things, right? Because you don't have to run wires in the home. Right. to a Wi-Fi hub or whatever. And, and I mean, obviously, if you get lucky and you've built a grid that, that will do power line signaling, that's a great way of doing it. It certainly won't work for me because I'm uh, three hops, de- three uh, transformers away from. Right. Yeah, so I, I'm definitely out for that. Yeah, so, you're going to need a satellite, James. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> no, you're con- yeah. I'm sure you're connected, so you won't need a satellite. I'm, no, I've got fiber to the home. Yeah. I've got fiber to the field, if you remember. Right. So. That's right. We put it in a couple of years ago, dug up all the fields. So, Okay, I hope I didn't break anything with all these interruptions. But uh, No, no, I was almost done. So um, I was going to run through uh, sort of the value chain. So basically the car makers make buy stuff from uh, hardware makers who buy stuff from mobile operators. We hope that we're one of the mobile operators. And then there are people who enable things like uh, Microsoft and uh, so on in terms of the um, operating systems, and then there are people who integrate things for you, and then you consume stuff like infotainment and uh, live maps and books. Kindle? Why do we put books in there? Oh, I suppose it's a thing, right? Kindle is a thing as opposed to a car thing. Um, and um, as we just said, there you're going to need all the sort of standard uh, capabilities in terms of uh, SMS and USSD and voice and, and video. So it's basically a a fully compliant uh, sim and uh, the, actually the biggest problem for metering is coverage because actually no operator is uh, going to be able to cover all of the country you know there's the so very often in metering people have deployed metering and found that they can only uh, deal with about 65% of the homes and so they're now talking about um, eSIM, eSIM for meters so that you can put Vodafone or O2 or 3 or whatever in, in a, a meter electronically so you can get it to fire up with the operator that you can actually see because of you, you're deploying these devices in not very good bits of your home that are quite challenging. Um, so finally, let's just talk, talk a bit of practice. So um, we've built quite a sophisticated connectivity management tool for all our SIMs uh, using for, for IoT and machine to machine. And the typical uh, example there of, of a life cycle is you finish making your car, you get to the end of the production line, uh, you test it, you then close the box on your watch or you shut the door on your, your car, you leave the sim in some very quiescent state where it's going to report macro location. So you can now see the car on its car transporter across Europe, get to a dealership, then you're able to sort of fire it up so you can give half a gig to the dealer, so you can configure the telematics and so on, but you don't want the risk of someone sort of sitting in the car and watching 20 meg of Netflix or 20 gig of Netflix. You just want to kind of uh, limit it. And then the person picks up the car and they they fire it up and they, they get opened up to their, their full kind of usage. And so we've built that sort of uh, connectivity management tool to do that, um, which obviously covers the whole world. And let's, let's do a, a couple of, James has got a really cool video. So one of our, um, customers, are you going to um, take the screen and show a video? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so one of our, uh, I don't know, do I lose audio now? Are you on audio? Well, yeah, you want mute. 
I'll talk. At, at the risk of just before, it's, uh, we're going to have the music problem. No, no we're I, not. I specified. Okay. <laughs> I All gave right, strict cool. instructions. No music. <laughs> so this is a silent comedy video, okay? <laughs> Go for it. So I'm, look, I'm uh, focusing on James, JB. Okay, well, what we're looking at here is the output from a truck, uh, a, a camera in a, in a truck. And this company, uh, this partner, in Intelligent Telematics, uh, put these um, cameras in trucks. Uh, and they trigger when something happens. Like this event here, you've got a, a truck trying to overtake rather dangerously. Wait, wait, uh, James, are we supposed to be seeing something? Because we're seeing you. Oh, oh dear! I thought I was showing you. No, video. sorry. Glad <laughs> I glad I wasn't afraid. Oh well, right. Okay, we'll start that one again. Start it over. I'll let you know when we see it. Right now, we're looking at you. Oh gosh! See, all yeah. the production problems aren't mine. He is looking at you, kid. <laughs> of course, yeah, while he's getting his thing together, look at this beautiful, sip vicious T-shirt. Isn't that great? Right here we Fantastic. go. Fantastic! Oh. Looks like it's a winner this time. Got so it. Yes, seeing that? got it, got it. So we've got this camera in a truck. It's driving along the road. In this case, um, it's picked up that there are um, high G-forces on the camera. And when it experiences that, it takes uh, a chunk of video with the uh, event and sends that to um, a cent central point. Now, this little thing that we just saw there, a dangerous maneuver, um, and here's another one where they slam on the brakes, uh, triggers an event, uh, and it will then send the previous poof and bang. That's a good one. There's a cracker. It'll send uh, the video and the telemetry from um, 10 seconds before to 10 seconds after the event, and so uh, you see what's leading up to the uh, to the issue. Uh, and then you see the incident where um, the breaking or whatever happened. Let's have, let's have a look at another one. Um, so you can hear me now while James Light loads up another one. Yeah, here's, here's another one now. Oh, this, this looks like a reasonably boring. This is the one we've just seen, isn't it? So it goes bang into the bridge and takes out a, uh, a telegraph pole. And because it triggered on the, the first bang, you get the 10 seconds before and then you get the um, 10 seconds afterwards. Here's another one coming up now. Uh, dry force motorway altercation. So at the central center, you, you just get a lump of video which shows the lead up to the incident. And then this is where the driver, I guess, slams on the brakes or there are high G forces. And then it sends the video. Well, that one wasn't very exciting, was it? There was no blood or anything. Um, anyway. So that, that that's the idea, and I've got. Yeah. yeah. So so let me let me explain why what what this changed business wise for them. So before that they did this, what you had is you had an SD card in each camera, and if you'd had an accident, then you were supposed to bring the SD card into the office so it could be examined by your kind of uh, your boss, and they would see you know, what fault the accident was. Well, of course, the SD cards always kind of got lost or never turned up or whatever. And so you could never really kind of enforce good driving practice. With this, 
the videos and uploaded immediately, it can be posted to the insurance company within minutes. So you actually know exactly what's happened. You know that your vehicle is not going to turn up with the goods on time because it's currently, you know, whacked something and there's a policeman kind of going through a process of, of taking details. Uh, hopefully nothing, nothing really bad has happened. So it, it lets you run the business and run the sort of stuff in real time as opposed to this sort of a few weeks later, these SD cards turn up with Fred written on them in biro and maybe it really is Fred and maybe it isn't. And, you know, you can imagine just the nightmare of trying to make an evidence chain of any kind whatsoever with SD cards, whereas this, the evidence chain is beautiful. You, you It's instantly there. You can see it all. I mean, no one's ever going to, claim that this isn't the video of that vehicle i mean they're just not so it it, it provides a you know a great thing and then in general as i said earlier it can be used to encourage people to drive better and be better better road citizens as opposed to um sort of arbitrarily using it to sort of slam people and fire people and all the things that you would assume at first glance you're trying to do I mean, it's quite hard to find people who will drive these trucks it's quite expensive to train them and people want to put the time and effort in to getting the drivers up to a really good standard and if you can see every single g-force instance they go through you can very rapidly work out what this person doesn't understand you know maybe they can't tell the brake from the accelerator or something <laughs> something like that anyway so that's really um uh all of all of my slides and uh a few sort of examples of of its use uh in the real world excellent we should switch back to the camera by the way james now so we're looking at the part four case study. yeah so let me let's send people um, stop had, sharing that's me go. back so uh yep. i had an account uh, for all i know it's still there um uh, but if you're smart, you guys will flush your accounts once in a while. I haven't touched it in probably five years or something. Um, but let's uh, let people know, especially people who have maybe groups of employees who are traveling, uh, what's the fastest path to them looking into what you guys do? Truephone.com? Yeah, I mean, uh, in terms of if you're actually interested in the specific intelligent telematics solution, or just the service that you are known yeah, for? Yeah, Trifin.com yeah, for the service that we're known for. Um, it will uh, sort of ask you some questions and then vector you to the right sort of sales channel to, to provide the service. And if you travel internationally and so on, you'd be mad not to have our service because it's really good and it will save you a packet. And, you know, and, and our customer service is excellent. You'll really love us. So, I mean, you, you, you really, you know, I can't. I can't. Uh, I can't sell it hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> can't say enough good about it. Well, the other That's good right. point that you didn't realize is that people have direct access to Truefone people through the VUC. So, if some specific uh, panic state ensued and they were not able to get answers, they could jump on Bodhi, uh, yep. and he Absolutely. would he would transmit through his multiple channels. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, other than that, though, I don't think that's going to be an eventuality. Okay, any questions? I don't see any questions. I asked in uh, IRC. I'm looking over at the uh, bridge. I don't see any particular uh, hands raised or anything. Uh, so, so I I have a question. Certainly. Yeah. Oh, you, you just won though. No, Carl, yeah, no, Carl Fife. Oh, really? No, you, you can have his minutes. So, so that I mean. Um, 
I was interested when I was over in Santa Clara at the same exhibition you went to, uh, James Tag, with um, how much interest there was in the kind of Sig Foxes and the Lorawans and the and the other um, medium range solutions uh, over public, um, over unlicensed telephony. Do you, do you think that that is going to fly or do you think it's just a like a bunch of opportunists trying stuff on? Um, well, I, I think that, that something will be successful in that zone for telematics because you can make very, very low power transmitters and so on. So things that would tag your dog or tag your children or tag your valuables, uh, tagging lampposts, lots and lots of things. The traditional problem, though, is that we've had with, with those is they never get world rolled out as a worldwide standard. And so someone will come up with one of these things, but it's a funky frequency in one country, the same in another and same in the other. So the big advantage, that, I mean, the only reason that Wi-Fi uh, wi and Bluetooth and Zigbee all sort of were successful is that all the governments in the world popped up a tiny piece of spectrum that was the same in the world, or almost the same in the world, and said, go knock yourself out. We're going to not put you know, huge legislation. So something like 99.99% of the wireless innovation that's outside cellular has occurred on 0.001% of the usable spectrum because uh, it was set up in that regulatory environment. Um, and it was harmonized around the world. So th my first question with all of these new funky technologies that you hear about is, is this a UK only thing? Because module makers generally don't make anything that isn't worldwide deployable because it's impossible to stock all the SKUs and remember to send the right module to Bangladesh and the right module to England. And do you have to get a license in Zimbabwe, but you don't have to get a license in Kansas and so you know it's just a nightmare so um, if someone comes up with a low power kind of broadcasty sort of solution that can run in all 220 countries around the world it will take a nice piece of market share like Wi-Fi and Bluetooth um, and that would be excellent and every time it needs to get connection to the uh, the internet there will be a toss-up between can I get to a wire more cheaply than I can get to a cellular uh, access point how do I do the, the connection to the internet? Uh, if it's not harmonized, I, I, I think we'll have this conversation. I've had this conversation every decade for three, maybe four decades now, and nothing has emerged that has, has with any significance. So the, the only counter argument I've heard on that was that what's different this time around is that SDR is cheap enough. So you can have a, you can have a chipset that's kind of reasonably flexible about frequencies. So if it has to move, you know, 20% of the frequency because it's running in the US versus running in Europe, then, you know, the SDR can cope with that um, in, yep, in yep. a way that in the old days, you know, yep. tuning the coil wasn't going to work. It was just yeah, no, if, if someone comes up with a module that works in a good 150 countries that is either very lightly licensed or license free, that does that sort of thing, then I, I think it, it, it absolutely will fly and people will deploy it in, in lots of things. But again, how, yeah. I think it will fly, and it will it will be an interesting adjunct to Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, cellular, satellite. It'll it'll fill a nice neat gap uh, at the moment. So James is showing a Tie Fighter. James Bodie is showing a Tie Fighter, or that's software-definable radio. Actually. It's a that, Lime, that, is it yeah. Lime SDR. Yeah. yeah. The significance of this is um, James talking about the cost of deploying 
different skews across the world. Well, this is a software defined radio. The great thing about this is it'll operate with time. Yeah, no, we can, we can, yeah, I can show yeah. the pe people are looking at it, sure. but, um, microphone, yeah, get the microphone up. Yeah, can you mute, James, when I'm talking? Oh, is um, that what it yeah, is? The great thing, yeah, the great thing about this is, uh, you can configure it so that, um, it can operate with just about any waveform, and so you can change the waveform and the operating spectrum as you go around the world. And this is, uh, Lime Microsystems, um, was it an LMS? 7,000, something like that in there. So, so the experience with that is it's all, that's, that's all fine and dandy until you hit the antenna, at which point you actually want an antenna that's tuned at least to within, you know, roughly the spectrum you're going to operate in. Yeah, that's true. Um, modern mobile designs are constrained these days by the antenna design. Um, but having said that, you, you can produce something that, um, um, that operates um, on a very wide wide bandwidth as well, so um, I'm waffling a bit, aren't I? So well, the benefit of cellular is it's just the enormous volume. You know, you've got um, in cellular 4G, you have the same problem. You've got 70 different band plans that you have to deal with, but because of the volume of handsets that are made, people have actually brought out chipsets that deal with 70 different bands. Okay, I've got a question here. How many bands do you think a uh, modern iPhone operates on? Any ideas? I would say nearly 100. Oh, I was going to say 40. I think Tim, Tim's a bit close, actually. It's about 40 different bands. I think well, there are 43 different bands of uh, 4G, excluding the Chinese ones, excluding 3G and excluding 2G. So I, I, I'll bet you a beer that I'm more right than you are. Hmm. That'll be another beer, beer then. <laughs> well, should we look it up now? Yeah, and while you're looking it up, we can't let uh, James go without, uh, here we go, without mentioning his book, which is called Are the Androids Dreaming Yet? Amazing Brain, Human Communication, Creativity, and Free Will. Now, James did a presentation. You can look that up on VUC, but you can also just go to Amazon in whatever country you live in, presuming they have Amazon, or go to a bookstore. Of course, last time I went into a bookstore, the guy told me, yeah, just look it up on Amazon. <laughs> and I am dead serious, by the way. That actually yeah. happened to me in California. Slackers, these millennials. Anyway, uh, so did I get yes, a copy I, of this, by the way? I'm trying to remember if I ever got it. You promised me one. I think I did, yeah. I hope so. <laughs> well, actually, I don't think I did, but I, I stopped uh, asking. Anyway, we'll work that out later. Uh, but I do recommend you check into this because it's a whole other aspect of Mr. Tag that uh, was not exposed during this little section session. So now I have to figure out how to stop showing that. There we go. Thank you very so, much. So, James. Okay, there we go. That's the answer. That's still you. One, two, three, three, four, five, six. Yeah, but we're seeing you. Now, now, now we're seeing you, but not hearing you. This is the aspect of the VUC that I love so much. Yeah, both James are muted currently. <laughs> well, I didn't do it. Okay, I'm now unmuted. There we go. But James, we're not, uh, James Bodie, we're not, you were showing something that we're not seeing, I think. Oh, Starts. you had the statistics. There. Uh, can you there see we go. That? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. There you go. So that's how many bands? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirty, forty, fifty, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three. Not that many. Only twenty-three, James. That's so, oh, that's, that's LTE. LTE only, though. Yeah, but they're they're the same bands, roughly speaking. Uh, and that's the what's that? The currently there are how many frequency 
regions, because bands are the things with letters. No, I'm, I'm trying to figure this out. There are only four quad, they say quad band, right? There's only four transmission frequencies, are there not? No. Or that was quad, 3G, quad, that was 3G. Yeah, quad, no, that's, that was 2G, actually. Really? That, mean, that means that it operates on four different bands. But, right. Uh, but it's amazing how things have come on. Um, going back, what, oh, yeah, eight years, years ago, quad band was state of the art. Yeah. Now this is this is a standard iPhone. All of these bands, um, and well, this is just just the, the radio support. Yeah, I just realized how how absurd that idea of quad band was. Yeah, I, I, I think I think if you look at the HTC what, phone or the I, I mean um, or one of the Google Nexus phones, I think that they they use the latest Qualcomm chipset, and they've got. A, a lot of obviously we we don't know whether there'll be an iphone 7 and we don't know what its bands will be and we might know that in a week or two's time um but if you look at the qualcomm chipsets uh the number of bands is just astonishing yeah i think the winner at the moment is probably the uh those powered by the snapdragon 820 which i was first phone with that the lg g5 i think um, and that includes, interestingly enough, support for the f for the unlicensed, the top high-end five gig band. So you'll be able to run LTE on unlicensed spectrum, which in itself is very interesting. Well, here's something kind of interesting. This is the OnePlus X, which is a $300 really good phone. But you'll note uh, the European version has 16 bands. My wife has one of these, by the way. They're great phones. But it has 16 bands in Europe, 15 in North America. So whatever that means. Yeah, so that's right. So that basically, uh, at the moment, with the exception of that phone James just mentioned, um, you need a SKU for China, a SKU for the rest of the world, and a SKU for North America. So each phone then is doing 40 bands, some of them overlapping. Now, if you want to do the whole world with a single SKU, you get, uh, you get nearer. You get in the in the 80s of bands. Mm -hmm. You don't get to 120, but you get into the 80s. So that's why I was having the argument with James. I think I'm probably more right than he is. That if if you really look at, at the state of the art in number of bands you'd want, you know, that you can put in the phone, you're near 80. Whereas uh, a phone that you purchase, like an iPhone, is around 40. But you think iPhone, it it it's at the end of its its um, design window at the moment. I mean, we we will assume that in two weeks' time the new the new version is uh, unveiled. So, looking at a phone that essentially the design is two years old, and saying it's got you know thirty forty bands in it, um, you know, the the state of the art is more in the in the eighty range. Mm -hmm. That's what you want for uh, a one skew fits all uh, design. You mustn't give too much away here, James. We might find out what it is in a couple of weeks' time, but the rest of the world won't. No, no, it'll, no, it'll be announced at Worldwide Developer Congress. I mean, I'm assuming that it will get announced at WWDC. It may not. It may get. We may have to wait until September. I have no inside knowledge whatsoever. I'm just saying um, there is a point at which sometimes they get they announce things like that coming up. Yeah. You know. It ought to be pointed out as well that uh, w with Apple, if you know something and you let it out in public, you lose one heck of a lot. They have you screwed down. They can come and take your house, basically. Speaking from personal knowledge, are we? No, just from reading the agreement. <laughs> okay. Anyway, anything else from anybody? 
the greatest conference organizer on the planet is with us, Daniel. Hello, Daniel. I assume he's listening. He's in IRC. Okay, everybody, this has been the VUC. We're moving to what we laughingly call the mature audiences only section, which actually is kind of the opposite. But uh, anyway, we're going to turn off the video and um, we will continue in audio a little bit more confidentially. So thank you, James Tag. We'll look forward to your third visit very soon, I hope. <laughs> yeah, thank you all. Okay, take care. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you for listening. Thank you for participating. And we will see you next week. By the way, Matrix, Vector IM. Check out Vector.im so that you can be prepared for next week's um, session with uh, Matthew and whoever else is able to come from Matrix, matrix.org. And um, you'll be able to follow the IRC through Vector.im, as well as a whole bunch of other things that they're going to announce. See you then. Bye. And we're clear. Well, that went fairly well. <laughs> yeah, thank you, James. <laughs> thank I you very much, that. James. Yeah, yeah, I actually enjoyed that. Thank you. Whereas you were dreading it a few minutes before, right? <laughs> no, not at all. I, look, James has spent, spent quite a while traveling around the States doing uh, different briefings on, on this. And uh, I was feeling a little left out. So I'm, I'm now not feeling left out anymore. Hey, that was the bleeding edge of the IP communications and VoIP community. We're at VUC.me on the web. Thanks to Simwood.com, who can turn you as a developer into a telco. Our hosted PBX is provided by OnSIP.com. The site at VUC.me is on Bluehost.com. We use ZipDX.com for our wideband, full-featured conference bridge. And our local rate dial-ins are from Voxbone.com. Every Friday, 12 noon Eastern Time, see you next week.